Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Injury and Illness Record Keeping, Just the FAQs, sponsored by J.J. Keller and Associates. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health. I'll be your moderator today. Thank you so much for joining us. From our team here at the National Safety Council, which is currently working remotely, we hope that you're all safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I'd like to go over just a couple housekeeping items with you all today. First, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. To ask a question today, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Our speakers today will be answering your question during today's live event and also after the presentation in our Q&A session. So feel free to ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible today, but we might not get to every question. Uh, just in case we don't, any questions we don't get to will be forwarded along to our speakers today. If you happen to have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our list of helpful tips, and that is located on the right-hand portion of your screen. For basic troubleshooting information, just click that Help button located at the bottom of your screen. And our folks at JJ Keller & Associates have made the slides available from today's presentation, and you can find those under the Resources widget on the lower left-hand part of your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you about that a little later. Finally, this webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, just find us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's introduce our presenters today. Our speakers are Lisa Newberger and Derek Plowden. Lisa is an editor who specializes in workplace safety and environmental topics, focusing mainly on hazardous waste. She's the lead editor for J.J. Keller's Environmental Alert Newsletter and the Comprehensive Environmental Compliance Manual. She also contributes to leading trade magazines. Derek serves as a technical editor for J.J. Keller's Content and Consulting Services. He specializes in a wide array of topics, including construction regulations, ergonomics, walking working surfaces, and personal protective equipment. And he also writes for the Has Safety Training Advisor monthly newsletter. Again, we thank you all for tuning in today for this presentation. And Lisa, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thanks so much, Barry. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Derek and I are just thrilled to be here today to discuss OSHA's injury and illness record-keeping regulations with you. Record-keeping at Part 1904, it's one of the topics that we get the most questions on every year. And, and the reason for that is, you know, on the surface, record-keeping seems pretty straightforward. You know, OSHA tells you that if, if a case is work-related, if it's new, and if it meets one or more of the general recording criteria, it's recordable. But we all know putting that into practice can be a lot more complicated. And that's because you have to look at each case separately. What's recordable in one situation may not be in another. And, and maybe only one factor was different in those cases. Now, today the topics we'll cover will start with who has to keep the Part 1904 records, We'll move into the general topic of what makes a case recordable. Then we'll get into the specifics of work-relatedness, new cases, and the general recording criteria. 
Now, during this webcast, we're going to test your knowledge, uh, and we'll go through uh, several FAQs. As we get to each question, keep in mind, Derek and I didn't make these up. We chose real FAQs from OSHA. So these are real questions people have asked OSHA over the years, and of course, we'll include the agency's answers. Now today, this is going to be a general record keeping discussion. So we're not going to cover COVID-19, but feel free to ask COVID-19 related questions or really any record keeping questions that you have today. Um, please submit those in the Q&A box and Derek and I will answer as many of those as we can as we go along today. Now, before we really jump into the questions, just a couple basic record keeping um, items to cover. So, you're covered by the routine requirements to keep the OSHA 300 logs, the 301 incident reports, and the 300A summary if your company has 11 or more employees at any time throughout the year. Now that's for your entire company. So if your entire company had 10 or fewer employees at all times during the last calendar year, you, then you're not covered by the routine record keeping requirements. Individual establishments may be exempt from the routine record keeping requirements if they're listed as low hazard industries. And you can look that up and see if you're listed as a low hazard industry in Appendix A to Subpart B in Part 1904. Beyond that, even employers who don't normally have to keep the records must keep them for a year or two if they're selected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the BLS for the survey of injuries or illnesses. So it really doesn't ever hurt you to understand record keeping, even if you're normally not required to keep the records. And then for all employers, even employers who don't keep records, you have to report to OSHA any work-related deaths or severe injuries, and those are your inpatient hospitalizations, amputations, or loss of an eye. And you have to report those to OSHA within uh, the timeframes and the regulations. Now you need to keep your injury and illness records, your logs, your summaries, your incident reports, any privacy case logs, uh, any documentation around your record keeping for five years following the end of the calendar year that these records cover. During the storage period, you must update your stored OSHA 300 logs to include newly discovered recordable injuries or illnesses, and to show any changes that have occurred in the classification of previously recorded injuries and illnesses. If the description or outcome of a, of a case changes, then you have to remove or line out that original entry and enter the new information. Now, the good news is you don't have to update your summaries during that five-year update time. Okay, so that's the basic stuff. Let's jump right in. Uh, what I'd like you to do right now is make sure that you have uh, a red group chat icon. Um, and we're going to use that today to share responses um, for our fun FAQs that we're going to go through. So um, we'd like you to use the Q&A box for those FAQ questions. And then for your actual questions that you have on record keeping, please send those through the Q&A box. Okay, so let's start with our first FAQ. So what do you think about this one? You have a workers' comp insurance carrier who has denied a workers' comp claim. 
the workers' comp carrier said the case wasn't work-related. So if that's the case, do you still have to record? This is the, a kind of question that comes up all the time. Uh, a common scenario in this kind of thing. We'll have a worker walking across a, a level floor. She trips over her own feet and she's injured. Now, workers' comp often denies this kind of injury, saying it's not work-related. So what do you think? Uh, you have a, a few choices here. So would you not record because workers' comp said the case is not work-related? Would you record because it doesn't matter what the workers' comp carrier says? Or would you examine the case? And if it meets OSHA's criteria for recording, then you'd have to record even if the workers' comp carrier denied it. So go ahead and use your group chat, and uh, we'll see what everyone has to say about that. Seems like a lot of folks here are saying yes, Lisa. <laughs> okay, great. I'm having trouble actually viewing the, the chat, so Derek, maybe if you could jump in and, and kind of let me know what people are saying. Oh, of course, so we've got... A lot of folks saying yes, a lot of say examine. Okay. A lot of even saying well, do not you... record. <laughs> okay, how many, we have a lot of people saying do not record? Yeah. Okay. Well, so in this case, uh, we would have to examine the case for what OSHA says. We have to go with OSHA's definition over workers' comp, which can get kind of confusing because you know, in a lot of cases, um, what workers' comp definition is is not going to be the same as what OSHA's is. And so you have to remember that they're entirely separate animals, and uh, you, you can't rely on what workers' comp says. And that, that gets to be difficult because a lot of times the same person who's doing the workers' comp is the person who's doing the OSHA recording. So I always like to bring this out right in the beginning. There are two different, there are two different uh, systems. And you want to make sure that when you're doing record keeping, you are relying on OSHA's definitions and OSHA's systems. So thanks for filling that out, everybody. All right, let's go on to the next slide. So as we get to more FAQs, I want you to keep in mind that for a case to be recordable, that is for you to record it under 300 logs, it has to meet all the conditions here on this slide. So the injury has to be work-related according to OSHA's definition. And OSHA's definition of work-relatedness is found in 1904.5. It has to be a new entry. Again, according to what OSHA says, it's new. And it has to meet one or more of the general recording criteria. So those are death, days away from work, restricted work activity or job transfer, medical treatments beyond first aid, and loss of consciousness. OSHA also has sections in the record keeping regulations for specific cases. Those are things like hearing loss, tuberculosis, needle sticks and sharps, and medical removals. Now, we're not going to go into those today because we would be here all day long. But if you're interested in learning more about them, let us know, and uh, we'll get you more information about that. So OSHA has a record keeping decision tree for determining if cases are recordable. And this is actually found in the regulations at 1904.4. Now you can see that it walks you through the conditions we talked about in the last slide. Start at the top with the most relevant question, and that is, 
did the employee experience an injury or illness at all? So none of the rest applies if you don't have an injury. So if you just have a, a sore muscle uh, case or if you have an exposure but no symptoms, you don't have an injury or illness to record, at least not yet. Next, you go through the steps to determine if the case is work-related, if it's new, and if it meets one or more of those general recording criteria. So uh, again, you can find this decision tree in the regulations in 1904.4, or you can walk through the steps using our record-keeping tools that we have on our safety management suite. So now I'm going to turn things over to Derek, and he's going to walk us through more on work-relatedness. All right, awesome. Thanks, Lisa. So when determining work-relatedness, it's safe to assume the case is work-related if it happened in the work environment, unless one of nine very specific exceptions applies. And we'll look at those exceptions. But first, you want to note that all the conditions listed in the exception have to be met or the case is work-related. Now, we'll look at a few of OSHA's FAQs that show you how this works. But first, we want to take a look at those nine exceptions to work-relatedness. So here are the first three exceptions to work-relatedness. Now you can see that in each of these exceptions, there are conditions that must be met. <clears throat> and what are those conditions, right? The first exception is that the employee has to be there as a member of the general public. For the second exception to work, the injury or illness involves a sign symptoms that show up at work, but have nothing to do with the workplace. And of course, for the third, Exception to apply, the injury or illness has to be related to a voluntary activity. So things like um, playing basketball, football, some, something to that effect. Now here are the next three exceptions to work-relatedness. The fourth is very specific to eating, drinking, or preparing food for personal consumption. Number five is for personal tasks that have nothing to do with the employee's work, and it has to be outside of the employee's assigned working hours. And this one often throws a lot of employers off. They think that if an employee is doing a personal task during a break in the workday, that this exception applies. But OSHA says breaks are part of the employee's assigned working hours. Now, that word solely appears again in number six here. Work cannot play a role in the injury or illness. For instance, if the employee takes a shower after work to get ready for a date, well, that wouldn't be work-related. But if the employee was required to shower to remove a workplace contaminant, like a chemical, um, that would be work-related. And here you can see the last three. Number seven, you have to meet all three conditions for the exceptions to apply. Remember that parking lots are considered to be part of the work environment and injury and illnesses that occur there must be examined for recordability. So this exception applies if, one, the incident involves a motor vehicle, two, it happens in the company-owned parking lot or access road, and three, it happens while the employee is commuting to or from work. Number eight only applies to the common cold or flu. Other communicable diseases could be recordable if they meet the recording criteria. COVID is another one that's on there. Now, OSHA says that COVID can be recordable, again, if it's work-related, um, if it's confirmed by a lab test like the CDC, um, and it results in days away from work, death, or medical treatment beyond first aid. 
And also to note on that one, for some of you who are still confused about the COVID-19 ruling, there's, there's also a memo out there that helps um, with making that determination of work-relatedness. Um, the agency expects you to make some sort of reasonable means to investigate those cases of COVID-19 in your workplace. Um, they suggest that, you know, you ask the employee how they believe they contracted the COVID-19 illness. Um, you know, while respecting employee privacy, you know, you want to discuss the employee, um, his work and out-of-work activities that may have led to the COVID-19 illness and then review uh, the employee's work environment for potential SARS or COVID-19 exposure. Um, in the review, consider any other instances of workers in that environment contracting COVID-19 illness. Uh, moving on to number nine, unless the employee tells you about their condition and has been diagnosed by a medical professional who is qualified to make the diagnosis, a, psych a psychiatrist, um, a psychologist, uh, or a psychiatric nurse. All right, so let's move on with our FAQs. What do you think here? Is this one work-related? An employee falls in the restroom at work. Someone had left baby powder all over the floor. And we're just looking at work-relatedness here. Now you can select from no, the restroom is not the work environment, or yes, it occurred in the work environment. What do you guys think? Okay, so I see a lot of yeses coming in, some no's. Wow, a whole lot of yeses. Let's see, let's see what we got here. So yes, did occur in the work environment. Right, if you chose yes, the room is part of the work environment. Again, you're right. Remember that OSHA says, if the employee is present as a condition of work, uh, which would include anywhere on your premises or even when the employee is off-site or traveling for the purpose of doing something in the interest of the employer, that's going to be considered work-related unless one of those very specific exceptions applies. To those of you that chose yes, awesome job. To those of you who didn't, make sure you just go back and check those exceptions again and read through those just to get some clarifications answered up. Lisa, I'm going to move this on to you. All right. Thanks so much, Derek. Okay. So we have another FAQ coming up. So in this case, we have a company hosting a family fun day. Attendance is voluntary. So if an employee gets injured and requires medical treatment, is that an OSHA recordable for you? This kind of thing comes up all the time. You want to do something fun for your employees. But you kind of have to worry, you know, is, is someone going to be hurt? And if they are, do you have to record it? So in this case, you get to choose yes or no. Um, and uh, I'm going to have Derek. Can you help me out here again? I'm having a little trouble seeing the, the, the oh, chat. <laughs> oh, of course. So what, no problem at all. Yeah, no, this is everybody? another good one, Lisa. This is another good one. Because remember, when you're thinking about this one, consider the exceptions that I talked about early on, right? Those exceptions yep. are well known, as Lisa knows, for making or breaking the recordability of a case. Right. And we have a lot so of people saying no, some saying yes. Go ahead, Lisa. Okay, why don't we go on to the answer? Okay, and those of you who selected no are correct. That exception at 1904.5 uh, in paragraph B2II applies. So this is a voluntary participation in a recreational activity. Now, if you 
expect your employees to attend. If you require them to attend the event and an employee is injured, that's different because that's not solely the result of voluntary participation. Um, and then you would need to evaluate the injury um, because in that case, it would be work-related. Okay, now I'm gonna turn it back over to Derek for another one. So what do you think about this one? We have an employee who is injured in the company parking lot, either before clocking in for the day or after clocking out for the day. What do you think, yes or no? Of course, I see some answers pouring in. Some say no. Some are saying yes. Lisa, anything you wanna to add to this one? Um, this one is, is a, a tricky one and uh, one that will be coming up uh, for those of us located in areas that uh, get slippery conditions, um, unfortunately, very soon. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what people have to say about this. A lot of yeses in here, Lisa, and you're right. The parking lots are considered part of the employer's establishment. Punching in or out of a time clock does not determine the outcome here for work-relatedness. And why is that? Well, that's because none of the work-related exceptions under 1904.5b2 um, apply to the event. The case is work-related. Now, should note, company-owned parking lots and access roads are considered to be part of your establishment. So injuries and illnesses that occur there are considered to be uh, work-related unless one of those exceptions applies. Now, there is an exception, keep in mind, for motor vehicle accidents that occur in the parking lot um, while the employee is commuting to or from work. But, but again, that one's a very specific exception. The injury has to involve a motor vehicle, and it has to be during the commute. In addition, OSHA says that clocking it in or out, taking breaks, lunch hours, None of those things matter on their own uh, when determining work-relatedness. The employee would have been there or would not have been injured, except that they were acting in the interest of the employer uh, or there because of the conditions of work. Lisa? Great, thanks, Derek. Okay, so this next one, I want you to remember Derek and I didn't make these up. These are actual OSHA questions. So um, don't get mad at the messenger on this one. So on this one, we're gonna look at more closely at what OSHA considers to be personal tasks for the, the exception at 1904.5, paragraph B25. Now, this OSHA FAQ asks about a woman who was knitting a sweater for her daughter during a lunch break. If she hurts herself with a knitting needle and she needs stitches, is this case going to be work-related and recordable? Now, this FAQ is asking about whether the exception for personal tasks is going to apply. What do you think? Again, please use that group chat feature. And Derek, what kind of things are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of no's here, Lisa, on this one. Some yeses, but mostly no's. Okay. So when you're thinking about why you're choosing no, um, you know, you're probably choosing it because it's a personal task, right? But for that exception to apply, you have to meet both of the conditions in the exception. And both of those conditions are 
yes, it's a personal task, but it's also outside of normal work hours. And what OSHA says normal work hours are may not be what you and I would think of normal work hours. So it could be, you know, the time that uh, an employee has right before work when they're leaving their car and coming into the, the work environment or leaving for work after they clocked out for the day uh, or leaving for home after they clocked out for the day. Um, it can be break time, and it, it can also be that lunch hour if they're in the work environment during that lunch hour, which is what happened in this case. So, unfortunately, this case is going to be work-related and recordable. Um, and, and, again, don't get mad at me on this one. This is what OSHA says. So, um, I, I always consider this one really a great example of when that exception applies for personal tasks. Other things to think about for personal tasks uh, are, is it a personal task uh, or is it related to work? So even if you have an employee who stays late after work, if they're doing something work-related, say they're staying to work on a, a report or they're getting a test ready for the next day, um, that's going to be work-related for you because it's related to work. Uh, but if you have an employee who's staying late to work on a child science project, or um, one we always like to use is, are they building a go-kart for the, the after-school club? That's going to be for the exception. The exception is going to apply in those cases because they stayed late, so it's not during work hours, and it's not work-related. Okay, let's go on to the next slide then, Derek. So how would a company report an injury that was a result of an employee's diabetes? The employee felt weak, started to faint, fell, and, and broke their ankle. So what do you think? Is this recordable? Again, we have an employee who fell, faint, uh, falls, and breaks their ankle. There's a possible loss of consciousness and a broken bone here. And remember, when you're thinking about this one, you want to think about those exceptions we talked about earlier. And I'll give you a little hint, pre-existing conditions. Let's see, we've got a lot of yeses. Some here are saying it's recordable, yes. Well, a lot of answers flooding in here at the same time, Lisa. Excellent. Some no's. All right. Let's talk about the answer here. Right, so if an employee's pre-existing medical condition is the sole result cause of the incident which results in a subsequent injury, this is not a work-related injury and it's not recordable. However, if the work environment or uh, work activities of the employee contributed to the employee's faintness, this would be a recordable injury. Now, OSHA says that if the injury involves signs or symptoms that surface at work, uh, but solely uh, you know, result from non-work-related events or exposures that happen outside of the work environment, the case qualifies for an exception to work-relatedness. So in this case, it involves the employees with diabetes. The employee would have felt faint and fallen regardless of the work environment. But what about if the employee was working in a hot work environment and the heat contributed to the employee fainting? Well, that would be completely different, right? That means that the diabetes was not the sole reason for the employee fainting. But that, you know, events or exposures in the work environment caused or contributed to the resulting injury. 
then the case would be work-related. Okay, let's move on to new cases. So, so far, we've really been talking about work-relatedness and kind of going through all of those exceptions to work-relatedness, what makes the case work-related, what doesn't. Um, and that tends to be the most difficult uh, determinations that you have to make with record keeping. But there are two other legs of the triangle that make a uh, case recordable. So we've got the first leg is work-relatedness. The second leg here is new cases. So what does new mean according to OSHA at 1904.6? You can see on your screen, a new case means that the employee hasn't had that kind of injury or illness before, or the employee had that kind of injury or illness before, but had fully recovered from it. So that means that all the signs and symptoms have disappeared. Now that's usually pretty easy to determine, but not always. So things like muscle strains, back injuries, those can be tough to tell if the employee is completely recovered. And in those kind of cases, you can certainly check with your employee's doctor if you'd like to make that new case determination. Now, if you do consult a doctor, OSHA says you have to go with that opinion. So if the doctor tells you it's a new case, you must record it as a new case. Now, why is it important to know if you have a new case besides knowing that's the, the second leg of the the um, determining if you have a reportable case or not. The OSHA tells you you need to update your log for a period of five years. If you have an old case during that five years, if you have a case that's changed, you have to update. If you have a new case, well, then you have a new entry to your log. So that's where that kind of comes into play. And it can affect your injury and illness rates knowing whether or not you have a new case or if you have an old case. Okay, so let's go on and look at some FAQs for new cases. So here's uh, an FAQ. Uh, this kind of thing does happen in the workplace all the time. So you have an employee who hurt his back on the job, and that was in March. Then in September, he hurts his back again, and he requires more days away from work to recover. So how are you going to record this? Do you record this as a new case, or do you update the log for the original entry, or is there another choice? Okay, so um, good news, Derek. I am able to access the group chat, and I am seeing lots of it depends. Um, people saying, depends, did he recover fully in March? Um, yep, lots of people saying depends. So, um, someone saying if it was aggravated, so uh, new if fully recovered, must investigate to see if the case is resolved, update for the original entry, it depends. Okay, so I think we're getting the sense of everybody saying it depends. So, Derek, let's go ahead and see what the answer is. And the answer is it depends. So, good job, everybody. Um, it does depend on uh, whether the employee had fully recovered from the injury in March. Uh, this is probably one you'd want to consult the doctor on um, because with back injuries, you know, it's really hard to tell if the employee has fully recovered or not. OSHA does say that you don't have to go to the doctor. You can use your best judgment. 
and some ways to know whether the employee has fully recovered or not are, you know, how much time has passed. Uh, there is a lot of time between March and September, but for back injuries, we all know that that sometimes takes a little bit longer. Also, you know, for the, the appearance of the body parts, do we have bruising? Is there swelling? If those things are still in place, you probably have, uh, you know, the original injury has not fully recovered. Um, OSHA also says signs and symptoms of a previous injury that disappear for only a day and they appear the next day, that's really, that's good evidence to you that the injury hasn't completely healed. Okay, Derek, I'm going to turn it back to you. Yeah, sure. And really good points, Lisa. You know, sometimes cases like these can be pretty tricky. I mean, all the cases that we're going through now, so much in fact that some employers might feel a little you know, a little little pressure to get it right, right? But like Lisa said, if you aren't entirely sure, use your best judgment. And I guess I'd say to add to that, you know, you can even document your reasoning uh, behind your decision and provide that to OSHA should they have questions. You know, having that documentation on file can be, can be extremely useful. That's a really great point, Derek. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because OSHA is not really necessarily looking to make sure that you, you're getting everything exactly right. They're looking to make sure that you are going through the steps correctly and that you are using your, your good faith. You're making a good faith effort to record correctly. So with that, we will move on. Next FAQ, here's an interesting situation. How would you record a case where an employee is working on restrictions from one injury and then gets another injury. Is that a new case? And this is based on an FAQ, again, that asks an employee, you know, has a work-related shoulder injury resulting in days of restricted work activity, 